The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. We come now to the time when we turn our attention to the Word of God for the preaching of the Word. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10, invites you to stand as we acknowledge this is the Word of God. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now, as we take up your holy word, that you would speak to each of us gathered, that you would speak to each one who's giving their attention to your word as they are watching from home. Lord, that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a society, as a culture, the overall conclusion is grief is bad or sorrow is bad, so avoid it at all cost. As a result, before I enter most any funeral service, I normal, normally gather out in the lobby with the family, and I remind them of this truth, 1 Corinthians 4.13. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Or to say it positively, we grieve with hope. We grieve as followers of Jesus. But the tone and the attitude that we take through faith is that of hope. Now the context of 1 Corinthians 4 has to do with the loss of a loved one who is trusting in Christ. But the principle remains as we come into this text. We do not grieve over sin as people who have no hope. We grieve with the hope that is in Christ. Or to say it this way, sin and failure are not the end. Christ is. And in Christ there is hope. So here's the main idea today. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Taken straight from the text. Let's begin in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt, they knew this, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So he commends, he's, he's comforted, he rejoices that they were grieved with a godly grief that 
led to repentance. Now this, this causes Paul to pause, if you will, and state this theological truth about grief. And he gives you two kinds of grief, a worldly grief and a godly grief. Now even though worldly grief is second, let's begin there. Worldly grief produces death. The word worldly here means that your thinking, the way you approach things is that of the world or the belief of the age. So the reason I have to correct believers at a funeral is because they've adopted the belief of the age. Grief is bad, so don't grieve, don't cry. Don't show anybody. Don't show public grief. So worldly belief of the age a worldly grief, so Paul's saying here, the world does grieve. It shows a form of grief or sorrow. But this worldly grief is distinct. It produces, it accomplishes, it creates the outcome of death. The departure from life. So it doesn't lead to life, it leads to death, to, to destruction. So to ask the question, what, what does this look like? What does this worldly grief that produces death look like? Let's go grab two examples in the Bible. First, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Now to set this up to understand, in the book of Genesis, you have the account of Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, therefore he has the birthright, the blessing. And Jacob wants it. So Jacob takes advantage of his brother in a moment of weakness when he is, quote, famished. He's starving to death, if you will. And he offers a bowl of soup in exchange for his birthright. Now, I don't have time to explain all that, but to say that was a monumental decision on behalf of Esau. Wasn't just words. So he agrees and he, and he takes the bowl and he eats it. Later on, he realizes the fullness of what he has done. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What does that mean? That means Esau had sorrow. He had grief. But he had a worldly grief. This worldly grief is the realization of what you've lost. The consequence of what you've done. And you're sad over the consequences. You're upset over the defeat that you feel. The death that has come. Now turn with me to Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 27, we have the account of Judas, the betrayer. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betrays Jesus for money. It says when Judas, his betrayer, this is Matthew 27 verse 3, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent 
blood. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd say, well, he changed his mind. He says he sinned. Judas repented. No, he didn't. This is very important here. Do you understand this? Those of you who have grown up, been around and exposed for years to the Bible, to the things of God, you can even acknowledge that what you have done is sin and that it is wrong and that you shouldn't have and you wish you wouldn't have. But that doesn't mean you repented. Because worldly grief, even though it can acknowledge that what you've done is wrong, leads to death. It's hopeless. So, they respond to Judas, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Judas saw, saw no out. He saw no forgiveness. He saw no way to repent. Now I want to remind you something. I think this gets forgotten in the Christian community when we talk about Judas. On the same night, two disciples betrayed Jesus. Not one, but two. The other disciple betrayed him three times. Three times he denied Jesus. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter is brought to a place of repentance. A godly grief that results in life. We'll come back to Peter at the end of the message. What we see in Peter and what we see taught here is that godly grief produces a repentance, not simply an acknowledgement, not simply a, a sorrow, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So a godly grief, simply defined, is a grief that is from God. A grief that is from God. Now, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days. Why do we say good grief? Good grief. I don't know. I, I, somebody can research that further. Uh, maybe you can find the answer to how that originated in the English language that we say good grief. But here's what I can say. Godly grief is good grief. This is a good sorrow. It comes from the Word of God what God has said to us, applied by the Spirit of God to point out so that we see the sin in our life as God sees it. And when we see it as God sees it and His desire for us to see it rightly and to bring about conviction that leads to repentance, that is a godly grief. More than one time, more times than I even know, that during the preaching of the word, there are tears in the congregation from individuals, sometimes multiple people. There have been times when I've been preaching when you could hear people sobbing as a result of the word of God being applied to their heart and to their life. 
It's not the work of a preacher. That is the work of the Spirit of God as he takes his word and penetrates into the hearts and lives of people. And it produces something. It accomplishes something. It brings about an outcome. And that outcome is repentance. Now let's be very careful to understand repentance. Repentance means a change of mind and heart. Mind and heart. Not as you see it, but you... There, there is a matter of the will that you abandon the former manner of life and how you saw something. It, it originates from an awareness this is sin that leads to this altering of the will, of the mind, and of your emotions that you turn away from evil and you turn toward God. And you turn toward God in asking and seeking His forgiveness. So when we, this godly group produces repentance, it leads to salvation. We're not saved because of something we do. This is the fruit of what God's doing in this godly grief to bring about this repentance that leads to salvation. Now, we can think about that in the moment of conversion. That there comes this understanding of who we are. That we are sinners separated from God. That we have sinned against the holy God. And we come to understand who Christ is. That Christ is the sinless Savior who died in our place satisfying the justice, the wrath of God on our behalf. And we realize we cannot save ourselves so we cry out seeking forgiveness through Christ and Christ alone. So in that way, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But guess what? It's not what Paul's talking about here. Now the principle reaches into that, but that's not his point. His point here is to a congregation of believers about some very specific matters. Now notice what I said. To a congregation of believers. So you got to say, okay, pastor, then... How does a believer repent that leads to salvation? Well, you've got to widen your understanding of what salvation is. Salvation is not simply conversion. Theologians use the word sanctification, that you are becoming more like Christ in your actual lives. And then there is glorification when all sin is done away with at the coming of Christ. But right here, we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about the outworking of salvation in the heart and life of a Christian. It's the growth and progress of the Christian life, which means this. In the life of every Christian, there are times of profound sorrow over your sin that leads to repentance. And let me be even more specific to the text. There are times when God does a work in a congregation that leads to repentance, that brings salvation without regret. And what does without regret mean? It means that you don't have pain and remorse for what you left behind. Yeah, there are moments when you think about what you've left behind, but it's not that you want to go back. There's no turning back to that. That the desire is to press forward into the things of God. 
But I think it's even further that there's no regret and is that you're not continuing to live under the guilt of the past, of what you've done in the past. Yes, you're, you're reminded of it at times by your own flesh, by the work of the evil one, but it, it's not that we, we live under that sense of guilt. We live under the life, the salvation that is in Christ. Let's, let's just turn over for a moment to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a chapter of godly grief that leads to repentance. Let me just read a few verses. Have mercy on me, God. That's a person who's grieved. I've sinned against God. And and this is a holy God. And here's what I better ask for is mercy. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's a gift from God. The weight of sin on us when we're, when we're living in rebellion toward God, it is sometimes more than you can bear, but that's a gift. That God brings the conviction that you understand you've sinned against Him, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 7, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, verse 10. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me, verse 12, the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. That's repentance. It's the full work, which I just encourage you to sit and meditate on this chapter sometime today. Think through every verse, every word. What is God saying to you? That maybe, like David, something you've been hidden, hiding that's awful, God brings to the surface and brings you to repentance. Maybe he's just preparing you for the next time you enter into a pathway of rebellion. But let's be more specific than that. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Actually, stop off in 1 Corinthians with me. And let's look at the examples of godly grief that we find right here in Paul's writing. Now let's let's explain how we got there first. How we got to what he's writing in chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes some strong words. It is actually reported that there is sexually sexual immorality among you that of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Well, see, this is so egregious, even the pagans don't do it. And it's happening in your church. One of you is doing this. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. What does that mean? Paul's saying, Corinthian church, you're arrogant. You think you're doing something good because you're ignoring what this man is doing. Ought you rather to what? Mourn. Shouldn't this lead you to a godly grief? Let him who've done this be removed from among you. And he goes on to tell you to, to deliver him, put him out of the church. So the two issues here, there's two sin issues. 
Please get this with me. Sin issue number one is the brother, the professing Christian in the Corinthian church who is living in this egregious sinful lifestyle. That's problem number one. Problem number two is the church has taken a worldly attitude to say, you know what? I'm just speculating here. We don't have the details of this. He gives a lot every Sunday. We, we probably shouldn't confront him. If his family leaves, this church will fall apart. You know, we're a new church. We really don't need a big conflict, so let's just not deal with it. You can come up with all kinds of reasons to tolerate something like this. Every time I talk about this, people come up to me and say, I've never heard a church talk about church discipline. That's what I'm discussing here. That is sad. It is so sad, it ought to cause us to mourn that the modern church, even the evangelical Bible-believing church, has abandoned discipline. You know why? Because we've adopted worldly grief. We're acting like the world. We're not acting like the things of God. Now, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Then he writes the severe letter. So 1 Corinthians isn't severe. Man, we don't have a record of the severe letter. But the severe letter is a result they didn't listen. But then they listened. Now let's go back to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is plural. This is what happened at the church. Look at what this has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourself. It means you're ready to do the right thing. What indignation. You finally saw this as sin and you were repulsed by it. What fear. You saw this in sight of God and you understand he's the one you answer to. What longing, what desire for righteousness, what, what zeal, this desire for the purity of the church. And then he says, what punishment? You say, well, that's sadistic. He's proud of that? Yes, he is. Because this punishment, really the word translated here, let's use the word that's everywhere now, is justice. I heard this illustration about two weeks ago. I found this very helpful. If we found out that a member of our city government, city councilman, county commissioner, a mayor, chief of police, if we found out they were extortion, extortionists and they were taking hundreds of thousands of dollars for Gaston County, would you want that, first of all, to be known and dealt with? Would you? Now, now, here's the point of church discipline. We are a part of the kingdom of God. We have said we are professed followers of Christ and members of his church. Why should we tolerate sin? The answer is we shouldn't. We should not tolerate it ever. We should do the just and right thing because here's what happens. When a church tolerates sin, it becomes like the world, slowly but surely. 
Thank God. They came to grieve over what they were doing. They repented and they issued the punishment. Now, I skipped part of chapter two when I was preaching. I don't do that often, but I skipped it for this reason, for this moment right here. So go back to chapter two of 2 Corinthians. So the church collectively had a godly grief and repented that led to salvation without regret. You know what else happened? That brother repented. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure. Paul's saying, I felt some pain over it. Not to put it severely to all of you. So did you feel it. For such a one, there's the word, the punishment by the majority is enough. Which, by the way, the word majority there shows that not everybody at Corinth agreed with the punishment. But the punishment was enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You say, well, God's forgiven him, I can't. Paul says, you better. This is what the church looks like. This, this brother has repented. He's experiencing, he's expressing a godly grief that has led to repentance, leads to salvation. You forgive him and you receive him. Let me say it this way, simply. Brothers and sisters, we should expect repentance. We should expect that when we, we speak to sin as it ought to be, when we call people to repentance through the process of church discipline, even if it gets to the point of removing someone from the church, we should still expect repentance. And when that brother or sister repents, we should forgive them and receive them. So without getting into any detail to reveal anything, I received an email here in the last several days from someone who from years past was living in sin that it appears he has repented. Praise God. We should trust God and believe God for it. Now, Paul clarifies the reasons for his, act, the reasons for his actions. Verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong. Paul said, I wasn't primarily concerned about him. I was concerned about him. I pointed him out. But he wasn't the first thing in my mind. Second, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Maybe that was his father individually. I think likely what he means here is the congregation. But in order, here's why I wrote... Here's why I told you to do it. In order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. In other words, Paul wrote to you the right thing and you did the right thing before God. And that was the desire. So Paul's not saying that the sinful brother didn't matter or the consequences he created in the church didn't matter. What matters is the purity of the church. 
that they together and individually recognized their sin, sorrowed over their sin, and repented of their sin. And as a result, Paul and the team are comforted. They're comforted to know this. Corinth is a true church. That they are staying true to Christ and his mission and they desire to live in the sight of God. So here's my question today. Here's the so what. Is there evidence of godly grief among us? Turn to Luke chapter 18. You know what I think? I think think most of us probably expected for me right here to drill in on us individually about where we personally have sinned. I'll say a little about that in a moment. But that's not Paul's concern here. We want to preach contextually. What What does the context of this mean? It means this. Paul was writing to a church. So we should ask ourselves, is there evidence of godly grief among us? Now in Luke chapter 18, we have recorded here a parable. The parable is understood by verse 9. So if you write in your Bible, I'd circle, highlight, star, whatever. If you're going to understand the parable, you've got to understand why Jesus spoke the parable. He said, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That never happens in Gastonia. Oh my goodness. We're such good people. We're good people. It's just, it's just a place, Saul of the earth lives here. We're just good people. We don't want them bad people. We're good people. Here's what these good people look like. These two people went to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, the other tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. (laughs) So let me put this in context. God, I thank you I'm not like other people, especially not like this Republican over here. God, thank you I'm not like this Democrat over here. Please stop posting that Democrats or Republicans are evil. Will you please stop that? You're talking about some of your brothers and sisters in this church when you write that way. just want you to know that's what you're doing. Be careful with your language. We're about to approach an election cycle, which was the most divisive moment in Parkwood's history four years ago. I am pleading with God that will not happen again. Please, God. Don't become in any form of your life a self-righteous person. I'm better than them. You're going to grieve in that life, but here's what you grieve. You, you grieve over stuff you lose. Here's what the tax collector did. He stood afar off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast and here's what he said. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the Word of God ought to do to us. It shouldn't bring me in here and pump me up, make me think, oh, I'm better than you are. It should bring me to the point to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As this Word is coming to light in my life, I see things about me. Brothers and sisters, we are a Word-centered church. 
So wherever we gather, we gather around the Word of God, whether it's in worship or it's in growth group. That doesn't mean that somebody always is standing doing what I'm doing. I mean that the Word is the central way in which we orient ourselves. We orient ourselves around what God is saying. Now when we do that, what we must never do is treat the Bible as a textbook to be learned. The Scripture is God's Word to us. So when the Word of God is applied by the Spirit of God to our hearts and lives, here's something that should regularly happen in our large gatherings like this and in our small gatherings. Repentance. It should be a regular event. So just weeks separated from his betrayal, Peter stood to preach. And he preached the gospel. And there on the streets of Jerusalem, when these people heard it, they cried out, what must we do? The Bible says they were cut to the heart. The first word out of Peter's mouth that day was not come forward, sign a card, pray a prayer. Here's what Peter said, repent. Repent. I'm convinced of this. The evangelical world has inserted other things here. Repent. When it becomes evident that you have sinned against a holy God, you must repent. But you repent with hope. Because through Christ and Christ alone, there is forgiveness, there is life, and there is life eternal. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in our place. He took what we deserved. And how dare we malign the name that we call on, Jesus Christ, by living a sinful life. When it becomes evidence to us, By the power of the Spirit, we should lay it bare before God and repent, and that without regret. Let's pray. You notice I have not been specific about any particular areas of sin other than what relates to this text. But here's what I know. For some of you now, for months, when you've either listened online or you've gathered for worship, the Spirit has been pressing on you something very particular in your life. And yet again today, in a profound way, He has brought it to bear. I say to you with the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Do not presume upon God, my friend because you may not hear him tomorrow. And that'll lead to a grief of death. The good grief, the godly grief, is to confess your sin before God, to repent of it and receive life through Christ. So Lord Jesus, I pray for those who do not know you, who could not call themselves a Christian prior to this day in the hearing of your word, but today you have convicted them of their need for Christ. I pray they would turn to you in repentance now and trust you. 
for those who profess you, Lord, that you have made evident areas of sin in their life. I pray that as followers of Jesus, they would confess and repent of their sin and turn to you. And Lord, I plead for all of us that we won't become Pharisees. That we won't believe that we can save ourselves and that we won't believe that we're better than others. Keep us mindful day in and day out and keep us mindful when we come together that we are in need of a Savior. So may we now rise with this song and say to you and to one another, come you sinners. Poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you. Do your work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.